Hi, I'm Martina Rotolo, and this is Progressing Planning, a podcast series on the role of planning in fostering change in contemporary society. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Emma Spruce, teaching fellow in gender, sexuality, and human rights at the Department of Gender Studies of the London School of Economics. We will discuss their research on queer spaces in London, and in particular, we'll be talking about the role of sexual progress narratives of LGBTQI plus sexuality in contemporary debates on urban change and urban activism in London. Thanks for joining us today, Emma. My first question is, how would you define bygod geography and what has been its impact on queer approach to space? Mm. So bigot geography was a framing that I came up with early in my research, really, to describe the way that particular places, by virtue of their populations, get stigmatized as backwards. That is out of sync with so-called modern attitudes in particular towards gender and sexuality. So as lots of feminist um, post-colonial and decolonial scholars have argued, gender and sexuality have this long-standing and significant role in producing spatial knowledge. So, you know, we could think about the, the ways that spatial and social boundaries between the colonized and the colonizer were centrally organized around these supposed differences in attitudes towards sex and sexuality. So continuing to reflect these conditions of coloniality in the last few decades, LGBTQ rights has really become a kind of increasingly prominent way for states, primarily states in the global north, to claim their modern status and reinforce their supremacy vis-a-vis -vis supposedly backwards others. So there has been really important academic work by scholars including Judith Butler, Rahul Rao, Letitia Sabsai, which has critically identified the kind of geopolitics of homophobia in this way. And in particular, um, the way that colonial hierarchies and military and humanitarian interventions into countries in the global south have been justified through reference to these uh, anti-gay attitudes. So although that maybe sounds a bit dry, um, that place is commonly understood as a shorthand for sexual attitudes is also evident in popular culture. So, for example, um, if you think about the 2019 blockbuster teen movie Booksmart, the lesbian character asks a girl that she has a crush on, would you be afraid to go to Uganda? And that's understood as a kind of proxy for trying to figure out if her crush is also queer and therefore wouldn't want to be in Uganda because it's known, you know, in scare quotes, known as a place of mm -hmm. homophobia. So that's the kind of dominant framing that uh, academic research has, has taken. But in my own research, I've focused on tracing the ways that these assumptions about sexual politics interact with anti-black racism and xenophobia at the neighborhood scale in the UK. So to go back to that framing of bigot geography, I'm using it to name the tendency to associate particular neighborhoods, notably those with large black migrant and or working class populations with homophobia and transphobia, and to explore what that association does in terms of framing our approach to the space. Um, so, 
more precisely, the concept emerged from this ethnographic work that I undertook in Brixton, which is a neighbourhood that, um, even though it's been very um, widely and rapidly gentrified and has become whiter as a result of that gentrification, the neighbourhood continues to be associated with working class, poor, black and migrant populations. And so Bigot Geography anticipates that because of those associations, Brixton is a neighbourhood where gendered and sexual diversity uh, wouldn't be tolerated. Um, and so my research and that naming of bigot geography troubles that assumption um, by looking at queer life in the neighbourhood, by unpacking the racist and classist stereotypes, which suggest that it can't exist, even as it very obviously does exist. Um, and to sort of think about that relationship a bit more critically. Emma, you mentioned that you focused your research on the neighbourhood of Brixton. How do you think the process of LGBTQI plus territorialization in Brixton influenced there the politics of neighbourhood change? So territor territorialization is a bit of a mouthful, but I think it um, or I think of it as a way of recognising um, a kind of approach to changing neighbourhoods that assumes we need to occupy space. And one of the things that that assumption about the need to occupy does is to um, kind of simplify what any community looks like, right? So it it dismisses an intersectional understanding of identity um, and suggests that a group, whether it's sexual, racial, religious, etc., possesses this sort of shared and universal identity across the group. So in the case of Brixton, a territorial approach to fostering gay friendliness problematically suggests that there's a white gay population and a black heterosexual population, and that these two populations are fighting over the space. And of course, what this does is to completely erase black queer populations. And the account means that the neighbourhood of Brixton then isn't recognised as a vital site of progressive sexual politics, despite the ample evidence that it is indeed a site of progressive sexual politics, precisely because of its kind of reputation as a black and poor neighbourhood. And that popular attachment to bigot geographies means that um, that this territorial framing reinforces perceptions of black homophobia, um, even though the racism of white gay communities goes largely unremarked in it. Um, so in terms of thinking more about the politics of neighbourhood change, um, I think I'm interested in Brixton and in and more broadly um, in attending to um, ways of fostering LGBTQ life in neighbourhoods that don't suggest that we need to territorialise them. Um, but instead kind of looks towards the ways that marginalised LGBTQ people uh, make space, make their home in neighbourhoods. So um, in part, I guess, inspired by some of the abolitionist approaches to violence and social justice, I'm interested in how we can think more creatively about creating conditions for queer flourishing in a way that means that LGBTQ placemaking isn't put into this zero-sum territorial relationship with the placemaking of racialized and impoverished groups. So moving from your study on Brixton neighborhood in London, what do you think is distinctive about London relationship to narrative on gay progress? 
I guess that the answer to this is a little bit contradictory um, because London is both, I would suggest, a unique place, but is also part of this broader narrative that I would suggest is present across European metropoles. So academia is becoming more aware and a bit more engaged in conversations about uh, LGBTQ um, uh, practices in settler colonial societies in terms of claims to place and space. Um, but an emerging and, and perhaps underdeveloped conversation focuses on claims to the post-imperial city. So post-imperial cities such as London um, and post-imperial cities, I'd suggest, have a distinctive relationship to narratives of progress precisely because of their colonial politics or their relationship to the colonial politics of sex and sexuality. Um, so there's a tendency to situate progress as something that's endemic to imperial cities of Europe. This tendency naturalizes progress as part of European essence, whatever we might think of that as, and depoliticizes and erases long-standing histories of struggle, um, and very importantly, the continued need for political action and struggle in the present moment. Of course, London is an especially potent site for thinking through these politics as the heart of empire and as a self-designated leader in contemporary international LGBTQ plus rights and activism, which often you know, is being projected from London to former and active British colonies. So London is unique in the specificities of British colonialism, but it's also part of a broader global north European uh, metropole um, group of narratives about sexual politics and gay progress, which require this careful deconstruction. So in other words, we need to hold, I think, London's record as a place that LGBTQ plus rights can flourish in tension with its record of failing to provide conditions for the flourishing of black migrant and poor populations, um, as was sort of very um, tragically illustrated in the Grenfell fire a couple of years ago. You also wrote that city spaces have a complicated but deeply invested relationship with gay identity politics. How have LGBTQI plus communities influenced urban change? And how would you explain the process of queer gay gentrification? Mm, so gentrification, as it was initially outlined in the 1960s by Ruth Glass, described this process of demographic shift um, where a predominantly working class neighbourhood in London was um, replaced by a primarily middle class one. And Glass suggested that middle class neighbourhood refurbishment raised the value of renting or buying property in the area and so priced out the working class incumbents um, and was critical of this process. So the suggestion that there might be something particular to say about the way gay communities participate in gentrification came around a couple of decades later from observations in the US primarily. So for a range of reasons, it was observed that gay people were buying and renting property in disinvested areas. And again, it was suggested that through their kind of practices of placemaking, this drove up neighborhood values and so displaced poor, often racialized inhabitants. Now, as you can probably tell, uh, most of the time when we're talking about gay or queer gentrification, we're actually only really speaking about men, both because cis men are relatively affluent in relationship to women and trans folk of all genders, and because of that very stereotypical belief in gay men's aptitude for beautification, a kind of queer eye for the housing market, I guess. So what often goes under-recognised when we're talking about gay gentrification 
is that many LGBTQ people who aren't affluent enough to keep pace with the changes in the local market are also displaced in the process. So in other words, it's a messier pattern than is initially implied by the term. But from that kind of set of observations uh, in the late 80s and 90s, more recently, we've needed to revisit this framing of gay gentrification because LGBTQ presence has increasingly been adopted and marketed by developers as a way of building an area's reputation as cosmopolitan, modern, desirable. So rather than thinking about displacement as an unintended byproduct of patterns of gay settlement, gentrification has become a strategy for displacing stigmatized populations so that investment can be maximized. So if we circle back to the argument I was outlining about bigot geographies, where positive descriptions of LGBTQ life are associated with white and middle class communities and spaces, while non-white and or working class communities and spaces are associated with homophobia and anti-LGBTQ violence. And then we combine this with the strength of LGBTQ presence as a symbol of market potential. The displacement and disciplining of people of colour and working class communities gets positioned as something that's a necessary condition for neighbourhood development. So in my work, as I said, I sort of set out to challenge this um, idea that there's a necessary displacement or disciplining by thinking more broadly about the diverse place and space based needs and desires that LGBTQ people of all identities and positions have. Moving to our last question, you recently studied the dynamics of transversal politics in urban spaces. How do you think a transversal political perspective could help, and I quote, grasp, critically engage and amplify LGBTQI plus activism, especially during the experience of the pandemic? So I guess maybe the first thing to clarify a little bit is how I'm thinking about transversal politics here. So it has for me two really important um, interventions. So the first is that uh, transversal politics cuts across and disrupts differences in terms of identity and position. And then the second is that uh, transversal politics also cuts across scales and disrupts assumptions about what happens where, um, who is a leader in something or where, where leads something. So for more than a year now, um, we've been living in the midst of this global pandemic. And because cities are characterized by population density, proximity and shared space, COVID-19 has really profoundly, I think, altered our experience of the city and in some ways illuminated the ways that experiences are very different depending on your privilege. So access to green space, we saw a lot of um, uh, mobilisation around access to parks early on in the pandemic, um, but also things like clean air, safe housing, um, adequate food, just policing. All of these things have really come to public attention um, and generated activist responses in London during the pandemic. And they're not issues that are conventionally perhaps associated with LGBTQI activisms, but I think that um, both looking at the activisms and looking at um, the, um, the kind of um, mobilizations around these issues through a transversal approach helps us to see the ways that there are new connections being forged in relation um, to the injustices that COVID has really catalyzed or has, has brought our attention to. So in other words, I'm suggesting that we can turn to transversal politics to recognize and to amplify the LGBTQ plus activisms that 
often because they're focusing on multiply marginalized members of the LGBTQ plus community, are working in solidarity with other groups. Of course, that sexual and gendered norms aren't only harmful for LGBTIQ plus identified people isn't is a it's a quite a familiar argument um, and it's one that's been made very strongly by a lot of anti-racist and black queer and feminist thinkers um, but I think it could still be applied more forcefully to help us draw these connections across urban injustices so thinking about the particular case of homelessness in London for a moment, again, an issue which has really been brought to light during COVID, um, a transversal approach suggests that we might organise our activism around those points of kind of conflation, association and overlap, which connect housing deprivation and sexual deviancy. So these are particularly evident in the historic and contemporary laws, policies and norms that govern public space. So we could turn to the quality of life policies that have become central to urban governance in the 21st centuries and note the ways that they contain both explicit mandates around gendered and sexual behaviour and also provide in the ways that they're interpreted and deployed a central channel through which classed and racialized notions of inappropriate sexual and gendered behaviour create and sustain housing inequality. We could also turn to the majority of research on homelessness, where sexuality almost exclusively appears in connection to LGBTIQ plus youth. And to be clear, these people, LGBTQI plus folk, are hugely overrepresented amongst homeless populations and the identity responsive services um, that exist should be given more support and absolutely need more support. But what a transversal or connective approach could let us linger on is the fact that although it's ever so rarely acknowledged as a question of sexuality, a significant majority of rough sleepers in London name relationship breakdown as the catalyst for homelessness. So in other words, what can connecting these experiences tell us about the force that sexual norms hold over housing security in the city? So in a nutshell, transversal politics can help us to push back against the territorialization politics, which, are dis which I discussed before. It can refuse um, the kind of idea that there are these discrete LGBTQ urban activisms which are separate from um, anti-racist and anti-poverty activisms and instead focus on the ways that these activisms connect, um, could connect more um, and are already working together in really vital and interesting ways. Thank you for listening to this episode and to Dr. Emma Spruce for talking to us. For more information, you can visit our blog at blog.lsc.ac.uk slash progressing planning. We want also to thank the Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund at LSC for sponsoring this episode. Next episode, we will be talking with Dr. Ulises Moreno Tabares, postdoctoral associate at the London School of Economics. See you soon. <laughs>